welcome. Um, there's been a little period away for the last month doing other work and doing university work. So we're going to continue now with AT6, uh, the sixth in the Thoracic Anatomy series. This is the first of the anatomy of the heart. We'll complete uh, the second portion just talking about the conducting system, a little bit about uh, the um, uh, coronary arteries and the venous drainage of the heart, and a little bit about um, anatomical aspects um, of congenital um, heart anomalies. Um, in this particular one, um, we can think of the middle mediastinum here, although it's safe to say that few clinicians actually use this term for an area that includes the heart and the origin of the great vessels, the pericardium, the lung roots, and part of the phrenic nerves. Um, at least if we use the term, we understand the area under consideration and also perhaps a little bit about the seminal nature of the embryology of the phrenic nerve. Uh, now, in our dissections, we usually partially divide at the sternoclavicular joint and we come across the lateral aspect of the costal margin as laterally as we can so that the front of the chest and rib cage are flapped or, or rather flipped downwards or removed as a disc. And the aim for the students examining the chest here is not to destroy the structures at the root of the neck or those structures at the top of the rectus abdominis muscle and the external oblique at the top of the abdomen. So let us imagine then uh, that we are there and we are faced with the anterior mediastinum, which we've already discussed, and the pericardium. Now, we're importantly looking at the fibrous pericardium, and I've already, uh, in the last podcast but one, discussed the embryology of this area, the fusion of the fibrous pericardium and the central tendon of the diaphragm and the innervating phrenic nerve. This fibrous pericardium also embraces the roots of the great vessels and there are sometimes an upper and a lower sternopericardial ligament and these latter are of relevance in a midline stenotomy for coronary artery bypass grafts for example uh, as this area in a redo coronary artery bypass graft operation, a redo cabbage, can develop very marked adhesions in the territory of the anterior mediastinum that can be quite vascular. Now inside the fibrous pericardium is a parietal and a visceral serous pericardium. Just as I've said, there's a parietal and a visceral pleura and a parietal and a visceral peritoneum, as we shall see when we get on to the abdomen. And I'll expand on the serous pericardium because anatomists always talk about the transverse sinus and the oblique sinus. And I want to explain a little bit how this works and indeed why it's important. I notice that the students don't really understand these spaces and it's rare that anyone explains to them why they matter. We need to understand when we open this pericardium really, firstly, <clears throat> why the heart is disposed quite how it is. Now it also depends upon whether you have access to a prosected specimen where the pericardium has been opened or on whether you're about to do this yourself. Now in the latter circumstance, the pericardium may be opened in one of a couple of ways, trying to avoid injury to the phrenic nerves. You can use some forceps to elevate the anterior surface of the pericardium and then use scissors to make a longitudinal incision from the diaphragm to the aorta. If you wish, use a uh, to uh, either a pericardial window or a cut with transverse incisions like a broad-based inverted U. So there's a number of ways that you can open this. But if you keep your incisions and your cuts fairly central, you can preserve the phrenic nerves. Another way is really to create a transverse incision over the root of the great vessels and a similar transverse incision over the bottom of the heart and then ju just join those two incisions so that the pericardium opens like a book. And from this vantage point, you can then identify the following structures, or at least you should. 
And hopefully, if you're looking at a prospective specimen with the heart lying in sight you with an open pericardium, or you've just done it yourself, you can delineate the superior vena cava, the arch of the aorta, the pulmonary trunk, and importantly, I think, the ligamentum arteriosum. And if we, you wish to start here, then gently expose the vagus nerve as it curls under the aortic arch and coming from it, the branch, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve. If you want a refresher on that nerve and its importance, you can check that out in our series AHN2 on the neck viscera and also AHN13 on the anatomy of the larynx. Now, one of the things I ask my students is why is the heart disposed in the way that it is. It's, it's an odd sort of shape or disposition. And for some reason, very few of the students seem able to answer. What we're looking at here is what we call the sternocostal surface of the heart. And that's also the disposition of the heart that we see on any PA chest X-ray. The right border of the heart is then made up of the superior vena cava, the right atrial appendage and the right atrium. And there are, of course, the, uh, these are uh, the right boundary on a chest X-ray. But the dominant chamber that we see on the front of the heart is not what many people think, uh, the left ventricle, it's the right ventricle. And we only see really a sliver of the left ventricle, which is rotated laterally and behind. And although there is fat in the interventricular space, we see in the prosected specimens the anterior interventricular artery. Now, that artery is referred to by clinicians as the left anterior descending, or more commonly the LAD. And it's important because isolated LAD, atherosclerotic disease, has a significant mortality with angioplasty, or isolated stenting, associated with an improvement in heart-related survival. So it's an important vessel. But one of the things we can see uh, that you can clearly notice here is that the interventricular septum is essentially vertical. But moreover, the right atrium and the right ventricle have a sulcus between them. And instead of, as one might imagine, the former sort of lying on top of the latter, the right atrioventricular sulcus itself is vertical. It's not horizontal. And it also houses the large right coronary artery. So these observations that we need to make just at this simple status tell us a lot about how the heart uh, actually forms. Now, I want you to put your hand uh, under the heart if you're um, looking at a prosected specimen or you're dissecting yourself and you're now inside the serous pericardium. And if it's possible to rotate the heart towards you 90 degrees, that is to lift it up. Now, to do so, the inferior vena cava has to be divided as it enters the right atrium. But the next question I ask my students is to rotate the heart in that sense in their mind. What you're feeling in your palm is the inferior or the diaphragmatic surface of the heart. The front surface of the heart that we've seen is the sternocostal surface. So we're now looking at the inferior or diaphragmatic surface of the heart. And then you've got to orientate that, again, that anatomy in your mind by shifting it that 90 degrees. And the question I want to ask is, what is the dominant chamber that you see now? Well, the answer to that is the right atrium. And in fact, that large hole of the IVC where you've just cut so that the heart can indeed be lifted up. Now, off to your right, you'll see an equal measure, really the right ventricle above and the left ventricle below. And then running between them is now the posterior interventricular artery. That starts to make sense. This latter vessel supplying the conduction system of the AV node is important in our later description of the dominance of one coronary artery over another and of the clinical importance of this point. I'll leave that till the next podcast. But what we're doing now is familiarising ourselves with the chambers of the heart and their disposition and really understanding that in our head and by rotating. How and why does the heart lie like this? Well, before we answer that question, the next thing I then want you to do is to ask the students to put their hand now behind the heart. So you've lifted the heart up, 
you've put your hand underneath the inferior diaphragmatic surface. Now put your hand behind the heart. The hand is cupping the back of the heart, and it's actually holding what's called the basal surface of the heart. I must say it's not a term I particularly like, but it's in common use. But essentially, it's the posterior surface of the heart, the basal surface of the heart. And again, you can rotate the heart upwards towards you. Importantly, your hand is stopped from going further behind the heart by what? Well, you're stopped by the inferior pulmonary veins on either side coming into the chamber that dominates this surface, which is the left atrium. Running off of it is the left ventricle. And here between the two, we see also the venous drainage system of the heart, the coronary sinus. But as you're holding the heart, the question I would then ask is what lies behind your hand? What lies behind the left atrium? And that is then the esophagus. Now, we might, of course, ask why this is important, quite apart from understanding how the heart is disposed. Again, it's another kind of useless fact that anatomists are just telling you about. But it has importance. In the mid-esophageal cancer, which is actually the commonest site of cancer in the esophagus, the pericardium is in direct contact with the esophagus at this point. Uh, and in fact, there's pericardium overlying the left atrium. And one way in which the tumour can infiltrate is to cause a reactive or a frankly malignant pericardial collection, a pericardial effusion, as it's called. And that is one sign of inoperability in the presentation of an esophageal cancer. Now, of course, an esophageal cancer, or a lung cancer for that matter, can infiltrate other mediastinal structures with clinical presentations that make these presentations inoperable cases of those cancers. And perhaps you can think of these and list them, and I'll include a little list at the end of this podcast. The mediastinum is crowded together with so many structures that if they're infiltrated by an esophageal or a lung cancer, that presentation is essentially incurable by surgery alone. And that's the question I want to ask. Uh, what are those structures that an esophageal and or a lung cancer can infiltrate that render it inoperable at presentation. The next podcast will also include some information on the posterior mediastinum. That will include the anatomical mechanism for dividing the esophagus into upper, middle and lower thirds. And I should also point out that we hear uh, of a good malt scotch warming the cockles of the heart. And it's actually the left atrium is the cockle of the heart and hence the expression for anyone who's had a good single malt whiskey. By the way, as your hand is in the pericardium here, and it is stopped, as I've said, by the inferior pulmonary veins, you are in what is called the oblique sinus of the serous pericardium. And that is really the way that the pericardium is reflected off the surface of the inferior pulmonary veins. If you come back to the front of the heart and you can place your index finger and curl it under the pulmonary artery and the aorta as one to come out on the other side. And you appreciate that there's a double sleeve here of serous pericardium, but uh, your finger is in the transverse sinus of the pericardium. Now I'll come back to why this is important in a minute. If we wish to cut the heart out now by transecting the great vessels, we see the aorta and the pulmonary trunk behind and the superior vena cava below, which is the transverse sinus, and below this we see the broad oblique sinus with the cutoff of the pulmonary veins and the IVC sitting in that uh, serous pericardium. If you haven't done this yourself, have a look at a prosected specimen where the heart has been removed in order to confirm all that I've just said. Now we should be able from that preamble really to understand all of this if we get a little bit about the early development of the heart. Nothing particularly complicated but useful enough to help us understand. So let's talk about that so as to reinforce what I've just been discussing. If you think of the heart as a tube, perhaps extend your arm outwards and then fold your arm back so that your hand is near your face. And imagine, too, that your sleeve of a shirt 
is the serous pericardium. Your arm is then the heart. Now the hand, the elbow is folded back. The hand part that you can wave about is actually part of what's called the aortopulmonary enlarge, as it is called, and that forms the aorta and the main pulmonary artery. The region of the tip of your elbow is actually the forming ventricles. Now, if you were to pass a hand or a finger behind your bent hand, that's the territory of the transverse sinus, and I'll come to its significance in a moment. The ventricles below where your elbow is will enlarge differentially, and as the left ventricle grows more rapidly, remembering that the thickness of the left ventricle is about three times that of the right ventricle, then the left ventricle moves behind. And that explains why the dominant chamber in the sternocostal face of the heart, or in the chest X-ray, is the right ventricle. The heart is growing differentially, but also rotating towards the left. Now, the atria then come in at the top, and they expand, beginning in their most primitive form, as the auricles or the auricular appendages. And this point becomes important when we examine the inside of the right atrium in particular. It also explains why the atrioventricular groove or sulcus is almost vertical rather than, as I said, before thinking of the atria kind of lying above and the ventricles below, which is not what happens. The atrioventricular orientation is at, is at the same or a similar horizontal plane. And the valves then form from this area in between. And all of this is part of the so-called fibrous skeleton of the heart, the annulus fibrosus, which also gives attachment to the atrial and, atrial and ventricular musculature, but which looks like the fibrous skeleton, like a sort of infinity symbol lying on its side. And I'll return to that structure later and its significance. So why should I even care about the transverse pericardial sinus? Well, it has importance in an old operation for life-saving pulmonary embolectomy. Now, these days, a major pulmonary embolus where the patient is still alive and is managed by percutaneous thrombolytic therapy and inotropic support. But in the past, this treatment was not available. And what was available was a pulmonary embolectomy without cardiac bypass, what was called the Trendelenburg operation. There are a number of Trendelenburg operations, actually, but this was one of them. And the patient would arrive in extremis with a pulmonary, major pulmonary embolus, hypotension, and there was no access to cardiac bypass. And in this, a midline stenotomy was performed. A tape is passed around the inferior vena cava and the superior vena cava as well. And then with the finger in the transverse sinus, the pulmonary artery is lifted up so that a purstring suture is placed in the front of the pulmonary artery. And that's controlled upwards um, by this finger taking advantage of the transverse pericardial sinus. Now, what happens next, or happened next, is a little scary, um, having been involved with a couple of these in remote areas um, that were successful. The superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava tapes are pulled up, and you then wait a few heartbeats so that the heart would empty. And then with a small blade, actually just incise the pulmonary artery, inside the purse-string suture that you'd placed in there. And you'd place a sucker, often with the sucker tip removed, um, without the head on it. Just place it straight into the pulmonary artery to suck the clot out. And when it was cleared, what you'd then do is gently release the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava snaps. And you'd let the heart fill up so that it, it evacuated any air. And that would then hit almost hit the ceiling, really, as the heart started beating. And pull up then on that, have the presence of mind to pull up on the purstring artery suture and close it. And I can tell you that was a scary operation, but uh, it was occasionally successful and life-saving. Well, anyway, so much for history, but that's why the transverse sinus is important. Anatomy teachers and tutors most likely don't know much about that, to be fair. But with the heart removed, 
one can appreciate now the encirclement of the serous pericardium in the pulmonary veins and the inferior vena cava uh, permits the appearance of the oblique pericardial sinus that we saw before. And it's in effect the appearance, as we shall discuss next year, in the abdomen of a dorsal um, uh, peritoneal mesentery as well when you, when you look at that. There are aspects about the heart development with this differential growth of the ventricles that are similar to the differential growth of the greater and lesser curvature of the stomach and the way it rotates in development. And I'll explain that next year when we get to that point. The only other thing I'll say here again is to go back and have a look at the sternocostal surfaces of the heart. You'll notice that the right and the left auricular appendages appear to embrace the outflow tract of the right ventricle, that area called the infundibulum or the conus. Some people call it the conus arteriosus. And you may see running on the front of the conus an arterial branch from the right coronary artery and peeking over from the left main coronary artery there may be a little left conus branch and that's potentially a weak point of anastomosis between the right and left coronary arteries, which for all intents and purposes really act like end arteries or end vessels. But the point I'm trying to make is use everything that you're seeing in the prosected specimens or even in your own dissection to just um, take in all the anatomy that you're actually seeing. You've got to be a bit Sherlock Holmesian. There's always a little bit of extra information which can be observed which has some relevance. I should also point out, just I can't get off history, uh, but Galen, the great father of anatomy, believed that the right and the left sides of the heart didn't communicate. And when this was ultimately overthrown, Galenism was overthrown. This was the new era, the era of William Harvey, the new era of uh, the development of experimental and observational so-called empirical uh, uh, anatomy. In other words, the ancient world didn't recognise a cardiac circulation, that is a blood circulation, or the connection of movement of blood and the rhythmic contractions of the heart. And such a Galenic theory, of course, meant that the blood was exhausted rapidly, that new blood needed to be produced, that was thought to be by the liver, on a daily basis. The rather arterial appearance of the pulmonary artery, which contained dark, as it turned out, deoxygenated blood, was considered, even in ancient times, somewhat unusual. And so these vessels were called arteria venosi. And the inverse appearance of very thin-walled pulmonary veins that carried vitalised blood, vitalised with the pneuma, as was believed, were then called venae arteriosa. And it was contested that the connection was made across the interventricular septum by invisible pores, which, of course, no one could anatomically demonstrate. The blood, in effect, was thought to sweat from the right to the left side. William Harvey, in elegant tourniquet and bleeding experiments on animals and humans, finally described the circulatory system by about 1628 in his famous De Mortu Cordis et Sanguinis in Animalibus. It's worth a read. But it should be remembered that the tiny connections between the terminal arterioles and venules which were postulated by Harvey's theory, the capillaries had to wait about 130 years or so until Marcello Malpighi showed them under the microscope in a frog's lung. So old Galen was right in some ways. There was this invisible connection needed, at least invisible, to the naked human eye. It was just the wrong invisible thing. And of course Harvey makes much more sense with a circulation rather than a theory that relied on daily blood regeneration. By the way, the anatomist Michael Servetus, who was in other ways a bit of a heretic, was burned at the stake in Geneva with one of his manuscripts describing just the nature of this pulmonary circulation in 1553. Now, let's get on to the most difficult chamber, which is the right atrium. Now, the right atrium is often open uh, in your prosected uh, specimens for a reason. It has a complex inner structure that has relevance for the fetal circulation. And I note how very often my students don't really understand what they're looking at and why. 
So if you're the one opening the right atrium, uh, you can make a C-shaped incision, actually a long C which runs across the top of the right auricular appendage and that allows you to flip it back like a, a book page. So to be specific, use scissors to make a cut through the tip of the right auricular appendage and then you insert one blade of the scissors through the opening, make a short horizontal cut towards the right and now turn the scissors and cut through the anterior wall of the right atrium in an inferior direction and stop just superior to the inferior vena cava. You make a horizontal cut to the left, stopping just short of the coronary sulcus. And you turn back the flap of the anterior wall of the right atrium, and there's quite a bit to observe here. You open the right atrium widely, remove any blood clots that are there, and rinse the chamber out to reveal a smooth-walled part, which is the sinus of the vena cavi, and a rough part, which is the area called the musculi pectinati. I often ask my students what a pectin is, but the pectin is the comb of a rooster. We might, for example, remember the pectinate line in the anal canal. We'll be doing that next year or maybe uh, later on towards the end of the year. Anyway, the appearance of this area of the musculi pectinati is like a little row of teeth. The muscle branches are very thin, crossing bands. And that part of the auricle is the most primitive part, the earliest part of the right atrium. And you can then see a smooth part, which is the bulk of the inside of the right atrium. The smooth part is the sinus venerum, which originates really from the right horn of the sinus venosus. And the junction of these inside the right atrium is called the crista terminalis. That just means the terminal crest. And it's a point marking where somewhere in there the sinoatrial node sits. Now, not surprisingly, the sinoatrial node is usually supplied by the right coronary artery, therefore. And the exterior of that crista, crista terminalis may be revealed on the outside of the right auricular appendage, and that area is then called the sulcus terminalis if there's a little dip in that region. And what you're looking at inside is the intraatrial septum. The fossa ovalis is very obvious. The openings of the superior and inferior vena cava, the opening of the inferior vena cava, also often covered by the so-called eustachian valve and the coronary sinus and its valve and the top end of the tricuspid valve. So those are all the things that you want to see when you're looking into that right atrium. And the structure and the setup of the tricuspid valve we see a little bit better when we open the right ventricle. The atrioventricular node, which also cannot be seen, is located in the lower part of the interatrial septum, and I'll get into that a little bit in the next podcast. Now, I often ask my students a little something about the formation of this interatrial septum and a little bit about paediatric, uh, and I suppose later on, atrial septal defect. And, and uh, let's go through that just very briefly so that we understand it's important, but it's little understood for some reason. So uh, it's a complex and sequential process. The development of this section of the heart means really the conflation of atrial and ventricular septal defects with defects of the endocardial cushions and the atrioventricular valves, as well as anomalies of the great vessels, which combine in particular disorders, which are as common uh, 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 as things like truncus arteriosus and tetralogy of fallow. We'll perhaps go through that in another podcast. But the first portion of the so-called septum primum of that atrial septum in the roof of the common atrium forms at about the fourth week. And the two limbs of that septum just sort of extend down towards the developing endocardial cushion within a kind of common atrioventricular canal. And that opening between the lower end of the septum primum, as it's called, and the endocardial cushion is then called the ostium primum, the first hole. But an extension of growth then develops over time to close, where prior, just prior to closure, there's actually an apoptotic, an apoptosis perforation in the upper end of that septum primum, which is called the septum, uh, which is called the ostium secundum. Now that's followed on the right by a new 
crescentic fold, which is called the septum secundum, and that overlaps, but only in part, the ostium secundum, which then produces really the formed foramen ovale. And as the upper part of the septum primum then recedes, this area forms the valve of the foramen ovale. Sometimes in the uh, heart itself that you're looking at, we call it the limbus. And of course, at birth, the pressure in the left atrium increases and the foramen ovale is pressed against to separate the right and left atria. And in about 20%, the fusion of that septum primum and the septum secundum is actually incomplete, and there's a narrow cleft which is still demonstrable at autopsy, an effective probe patency, as it's called, which is not functionally active. The adult typically shows the scar, which is referred to as the fossa ovalis. Now, for completeness, it's got to have relevance, what we're talking about anatomically, rather than just thinking about it in abstract terms. But it is complicated. But an ASD, an atrial septal defect, occurs in about six and a half or so per 10,000 births. So it's not rare. And it has a two to one female to male predominance. The likelihood of the commonest variant is actually an over-resorption of that septum primum with an ostium secundum defect. And that's the one that leads to that typical split-second sound on auscultation, which I can assure you is quite real when you see a patient with an ASD. The most serious variant here would be a complete absence of the atrial septum, a condition of so-called common atrium, or what's called core triloculare, um, biventriculare, which always has other serious cardiac defects. And sometimes the foramen ovale closes prenatally, which is associated usually with massive right atrial hypertrophy and also the right ventricle with an underdevelopment of the left side of the heart and usually an early neonatal death. Other problems at this level include a persistent atrioventricular canal, the rarer ostium primum defect, which is usually associated with a cleft in the anterior leaflet of the tricuspid valve, tricuspid atresia, uh, this would always have a patent for armin ovale, underdevelopment of the right ventricle, a ventricular septal defect and left ventricular hypertrophy. And there's an anomaly which is called Epstein's anomaly where the tricuspid valve is kind of displaced anteriorly towards the right ventricular apex with a hypertrophied right atrium and a rather small right ventricle. So there's a range of these problems if we understand anatomically uh, what they actually are. I might do a podcast on the anatomy of congenital heart anomalies. Other problems can obviously include sinus venosus ASDs where there's a lack of separation really between the pulmonary veins and the superior vena cava and the right atrium and these can have therefore anomalous pulmonary venous return from the upper right lung, for example, into the SVC or the right lower lobe down into the IVC, as well as an unroofed coronary sinus where there can be left atrial, right atrial communication around part of the coronary sinus, a small ASD. I'm not an expert on this area, but I'm happy to expand on these as required if you wish to uh, contact our PA, Margaret, who coordinates the podcast uh, at megando, M-E-G-A-N-D-O 57 at yahoo.com. And if you want uh, a podcast on this, um, I'm happy um, to expand on it. So we move there from what we've seen in the right atrium to the right ventricle. And the standard cut that you'll see over the front of the right ventricle is actually an inverted wide U. And the immediate thing you see is, of course, that the muscle is much thicker and broader than it was in the atrial appendage, much thicker than the muscular pectinati. And these are called trabeculi carni, which just really means muscular or fleshy walls, as opposed to the muscular pectinati. And I think you should take a little time to compare the appearance of these particular muscles. Um, this area... Uh, the right ventricle is actually smooth and it's part of the so-called bulbous cordis. You'll notice that the trabeculi carni are absent from that area in the right ventricle and that's called the infundibulum, part of the bulbous cordis that's embraced by the auricular appendages that we saw before we opened the heart. 
Now, the way it's cut, you'll see the cut end of a thick band that appears as a small muscular oval at the edge of the ventricle. If you look at it, it's just sort of like a little circle of muscle. And that arises, you'll see if you trace it back, from the anterior papillary muscle. And that's the so-called septomarginal band. It's also called the moderator band. And that contains the right bundle branch of the conducting system. You notice also, I think, the inverted champagne bottle leg appearance of the papillary muscles, which attach via the cordy tendini to the leaflets of the tricuspid valve. And I think one can think of these cordy as tightening bands, and they remind me very much of the rope that attaches to the mainsail on a yacht, uh, and that's called a halyard. And the advantage of that system is that to prevent the cusp really from being everted or rolled up during systole, it uh, renders the valve more competent. And the tricuspid valve can be seen well here. It has an anterior and a posterior cusp, but also, if you look at the front of the, of the ventricle, a septal cusp. There's a degree of what I would call promiscuity of the papillary muscles. The larger anterior papillary muscle connects to the anterior and the posterior cusp usually, and the smaller posterior papillary muscle attaches to the posterior and septal cusps. And there can be more smaller papillary muscles that separately join to the anterior or the septal cusps. So these muscles will attach to multiple cusps. The posterior cusp is typically pretty small. The orientation is a little odd because the posterior cusp actually is lying against the inferior wall or the floor of the ventricle. So it's posteriorly located behind the anterior cusp. And sometimes the valve leaflets become even more complicated than that. So you may see some variation in the right ventricle that you're looking at. The infundibulum, of course, leads to the pulmonary valve, which looks very much like the aortic valve, but which is disposed in the opposite manner, so that the annulus fibrosis, that fibrous skeleton that I spoke of before, gives origin here as semi-lunar cusps. So there's an anterior one and a left and right, and it sits at a slightly higher level than the aortic valve, which is actually left and right, but posterior. So those are the structures of the cusp. We move necessarily, I guess, now to the left atrium. And you can cut the left atrium in a little kind of inverted curve under the entry points of the pulmonary veins. You use the scissors really to make an inverted U-shaped incision through the posterior wall of the left atrium. And don't cut into the openings of the pulmonary veins, but rather kind of between them. And then what you need to do there is then just turn that flap inferiorly. And we've already discussed most of the aspects of this with its left auricular appendage, the common pericardial sleeve for the symmetrically placed pulmonary veins, superior vena cava and inferior vena cava. That's, of course, the um, oblique sinus. And the cavity of the left atrium is smooth-walled, except in the oracle. Very similar to the muscularly pectinati appearance. You observe from this side, I think, also the valve of the foramen ovale and the interatrial septum from the left side the opening of the left auricular appendage, the opening of the atrioventricular valve. What's interesting here is that the bicuspid mitral valve has an anterior and a posterior cusp, with the anterior cusp that's actually interposed between the mitral and the aortic orifices. So the reason for that is there's virtually nothing between those, so that there's a directed blood flow which comes down from the left atrium into the left ventricle and then out again through the aortic um, uh, through the aortic um, orifice. The valve leaflets are smaller, but they're thicker than those of the tricuspid valve. And the anterior cusp is thicker, if you look at it, than the posterior cusp. So the alignment of these uh, bicuspid mitral valve is in such that the anterior cusp is interposed between, if you like, the mitral and aortic orifices. It's kind of really directing the thing. If we get on to the left ventricle, one way of looking at that is, if you're doing it yourself rather than a prosected specimen, is to make an incision in the left ventricle just to the left of and parallel with the anterior interventricular sulcus, extending the cut to the right behind the pulmonary trunk and through the aortic valve orifice. And that cut actually damages 
the interventricular branch of the left anterior descending artery and the great cardiac vein. But it allows you to look at the aorta, which you can see from above. You can identify the semilunar valve cusps and you insert one blade of the scissors between the left and the right semilunar cusps and make a cut through the anterior wall of the ascending aorta. And that cut is anterior and parallel to the left coronary artery. And you can cut down, if you like, on this down to the apex of the heart, about two centimetres to the left of the anterior interventricular sulcus and parallel to that interventricular septum and the LAD, the left anterior descending. And then you, you basically then remove any blood clot and just rinse it with water. But you can identify from this the mitral or bicuspid valve, as it's called, and its anterior and posterior cusps. And you can actually palpate the muscular part of the interventricular septum and palpate this thing that I was talking about with your thumb of your right hand in the right ventricle and the index finger in the left ventricle. And you can move your thumb and index fingers superiorly along the interventricular septum and identify, you can actually feel, a thinner so-called membranous portion of the septum. And that's just inferior to the attachment of the right cusp of the aortic valve. Below that is the muscular part of the interventricular septum. And once again, I think you should observe the openings of the coronary arteries, what are called the ostia, and the location of the posterior, so-called non-coronary cusp. The left ventricle, as we know, is three times thicker than the right ventricle. If you're looking at a, uh, at a um, cadaver, you might find uh, more commonly that it might be much bigger here because the patient may have had heart failure or died uh, from ischemic heart disease. That's not an uncommon uh, thing, but normally the left ventricle is about three times thicker than the right ventricle. You can cut the apex of the heart off and just look at that uh, and see the difference and the interventricular septum. And in this circumstance, normally the interventricular septum tends to balloon a little bit from left to right into the right ventricular cavity. So it's actually distorting the right ventricular cavity a little bit. The anterior papillary muscle is the larger and the area of smoothness below the aortic orifice we call the aortic vestibule. The septum, as I've said, has a membranous attachment to the annulus and a muscular component below, and you just reconfirm that. And the aortic valve is a little bit more obliquely orientated, a little bit more rightward, slightly lower than the pulmonary artery, the pulmonary, uh, pulmonary valve at any rate, and the aortic valve has, as I've said, a right and left component, but posterior semilunar cusps. On the structure of the heart valves, we can notice the cusps of the atrioventricular valves are similar, and they have micro serrations on them, so that they're adjusting, really, to a competent valve closure. The cordy, cordy tendini, as we mentioned before, actually have a dual role in preventing eversion and ballooning of the leaflets, and that increases the efficiency of the heart, and they reduce also the traction on the ventricular side by pulling on the papillary muscles a little bit. By contrast, the cusps of the pulmonary artery and the aortic valve are cup-shaped with an obliquity and a central nodule in the cusp. And as the ventricle contracts, they have a ballooned edge which prevents them from being flattened. And there are kind of vortices of blood flow which are created above in these little balloon areas just above the valve, which are called the sinuses of Valsalva. Now, that point has recently been demonstrated, this kind of vorticeal flow on uh, MRI. Uh, but it was drawn by Leonardo da Vinci in his uh, anatomical folia. It wasn't described until uh, Antonio Valsalva described it in the mid-18th century. I think that we'll stop here and we'll go on in the next podcast to discuss the coronary circulation and the conducting system, and then we'll move on to the posterior mediastinum. Uh, if we find time at the end of the year, perhaps make one on the anatomy of congenital heart anomalies. Next year we'll be moving on then to the anatomy of the abdomen and pelvis. Before we finish, did you figure out the structures in the mediastinum that an esophageal or a lung cancer or a recurrence of either could infiltrate and how such patients might present in each case with inoperable disease, or at least disease that is incurable by surgery alone. 
have a think about that. Hopefully you did think about it. Well, one I mentioned is, of course, the malignant pericardial effusion. It's not very common. But another is infiltration between usually the left known bronchus and an esophageal carcinoma. And that presents as a bronchoesophageal fistula, particularly nasty, requiring esophageal stenting and a feeding gastrostomy or jejunostomy. That's a particularly nasty presentation. A fistula, an abnormal communication between two epithelially or endothelially lined surfaces. Don't forget arteriovenous fistulae. Sometimes we used to create those. We do create those, of course, for hemodialysis, so it can be deliberate. An SVC obstruction, superior vena cable obstruction, that is also particularly nasty. More you'll see that with a squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, and that requires emergency radiotherapy and steroids to prevent cerebral edema. A hoarse voice is another presentation, that's one presentation, but that's the result of infiltration in the mediastinum of the left recurrent laryngeal nerve. By the way, that can occur after surgery and esophagectomy, and the operation where you particularly saw it was a pull-through esophagectomy, an esophagectomy without uh, a thoracotomy, um, a so-called Oranger procedure uh, described by Mark Oranger. Uh, a CT may show, for example, infiltration also of more than one-third of the circumference of the preaortic tissue, which may suggest that this technique uh, is inappropriate. In other words, the Oranger technique, that you shouldn't be just pulling out the esophagus. So here a radiologic aspect of inoperability related to aortic infiltration, more than one-third of the circumference of the preaortic tissue on a CT scan or MRI. Of course, a pleural effusion uh, is a sign of inoperability, and uh, that may include a chylus effusion, although that's pretty rare. And theoretically, one might see a paralysed diaphragm from phrenic nerve involvement, although it's usually too anterior for that. Pain can occur, I suppose, also through sympathetic nerve infiltration but that's not classically uh, inoperability. Well, I think that's enough for this podcast. If you like these podcasts, please contact us at megando, M-E-G-A-N-D-O, 57 at yahoo.com so that we can tailor more work to your needs. We need some funds, I think, to continue, so please make a small contribution through Patreon, not Patreon, but Patreon on HTTPS colon double slash patron dot podbean dot com slash anatopod. Uh, podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N and anatopod all in capitals. A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D. I'll post that on our site. Well, you'll be acknowledged and your contribution to help us keep going is greatly appreciated. If you wish, I can send you an ebook copy of the Book of the Cadaver. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.